won arguments. Unlike the traditional liberal caricature of conservatives, DJ is a great guy. He does not secretly plot the conquest of the world with covert emissaries from Halliburton. He doesn't fly into a murderous rage at the mention of any member of the Clinton family. And rarely, if ever, does he roll around naked in mounds of gold coins stolen from third world families. He's a good husband, good father, and a patient golf partner. Around the time of the 2004 elections, the program director at the public radio station where I work asked me to do more segments about national events on my weekly radio show. He thought it would be interesting to have a conservative and a liberal on together to hash out a particular question from week to week. Is Iraq another Vietnam, for instance, or should Rumsfeld be fired? I tried it out and soon started having lengthy interviews with guys like Rich Lowry and Pat Buchanan. Shockingly, they turn out to be smart, friendly, helpful people who are articulate in their beliefs and form their arguments coherently. I didn't always agree with them, but often they made a lot more sense in whatever was being argued by whichever liberal I was able to grab. Maybe it was the quiet confidence that comes from knowing their side was in power. Maybe they were more personable because they were sitting in their luxuriously appointed offices with overstuffed leather chairs paid for by the vast right-wing conspiracy. A pipe full of good tobacco, smoked while not being encumbered by oppressive anti-smoking laws and hypersensitive liberals, and a snifter of brandy would make anyone a nice guy. Meanwhile, liberals sitting in stiff metal chairs in their makeshift storefront offices, constantly being detained and severely beaten by Patriot Act-enabled government enforcers, could hardly be expected to compete in the friendliness department. But maybe, I thought, all those righties are confident because they're actually right. As I reassessed my view on the conservative universe, I remembered Morgan Spurlock's movie Supersize Me. If all that McDonald's food was able to so radically transform Spurlock's body, what would a massive, concentrated amount of conservatism do to someone's brain? Is liberalism like a liver or a kidney, and will it just shut down after a while? Or could it be possible to switch? What if I could go over to the other side, and instead of merely appreciating and understanding what the conservatives have to say, really believe it and become one of them? Sure, some people drift from right to left or left to right over the course of years or after a series of randomly occurring cataclysmic events, but is it possible to change your own mind? Could I pull off artificial conversion? What would happen if I invaded my own brain with troops in the form of conservative opinion, conservative experiences, conservative art and culture, and all the trappings of conservative life so familiar to red state America and so foreign to me? Would those troops be greeted as liberators or attacked by insurgent brain cells? The more time I spent thinking about these possibilities and watching the post-election moping of every liberal I knew, parents at my son's preschool wept, actually physically wept for weeks afterward, the more attractive it became to really try it. After some soul-searching and a somewhat awkward conversation with my deeply liberal wife, I requested and was granted a month's leave from the station. In that time, I would change my wardrobe, travel the country on some carefully planned trips, and ingest all the conservative dogma I could as part of an effort to conservatize myself. 
Yes, I risked my friends and family disowning me, but I would also have proven that people, even in this polarized America, really could change their minds if they heard something thoughtful that they had never considered, that people could be persuaded, that ideas still matter. The other thing that might happen is that Jill would likely divorce me and never let me see the kids again. That would be a drag, but I was sure that the military-industrial complex would gladly provide me with a new wife and shiny, happy new children, possibly android in nature. In planning the project, I needed some guidelines. While sitting at a Starbucks in Seattle with my Apple laptop computer, I jotted down some parameters to try to get to a place hitherto unknown by people in Seattle working on their Apple laptops in Starbucks. I set up some rules for the self-conservatizing experiment. Number one, no lies, no fake names, no deception, no stating an opinion that isn't really my own. I'm free to be cryptic about my opinions and turn questions around when asked them, but it has to be me going through this. Number two, activities are to be based on a purely unscientific but highly personal idea of what American conservatism means. While I will surely meet academic conservatives who have no use for country music and working class folks who don't read the National Review, both of those things represent conservatism to me and so will be part of the research. Number three, throughout I will be sleeping with a hot liberal woman. But as I've been married to her for 10 years, that's grandfathered in. Number four, on the issue of the President of the United States. I've always had a hard time putting the name George W. Bush after the word president. The 2000 election was highly controversial, and 2004 seemed a little shaky too, in Ohio especially. But during the experiment, he will be President George W. Bush. Full title, every single time. Number five. All news and information will be gathered by conservative outlets. No daily newspaper or radio from any source that has ever been accused of liberal bias, which is most of the news media I currently rely on. When something happens in the world, I will find out about it through the filter of conservatism. If Bush is caught selling heroin on the White House lawn, I want to hear how it was actually the fault of the degenerate liberal culture propagated by the Democrats in Congress who somehow forced Bush against his will into dealing smack and who have probably done things that were a lot worse. And then someone would bring up Monica Lewinsky. Nothing goes into my head without conservative context. Number six, no talking politics with liberal friends. If the subject comes up, I must literally put my fingers in my ears and say la la la. Number seven, music must be by artists known to be conservative, Republican, or sympathetic to those causes. Artists who have performed at either of President George W. Bush's two inaugurals are acceptable. Number eight, drink Coors beer. The Coors family is famously blamed by liberals for everything from union busting to putting prospective employees through polygraph tests in the 1970s to determine if they were gay. Pete Coors, current family scion, ran for Senate as a Republican, but lost when conservatives questioned the company's sponsorship of a gay-themed festival in Canada. Play with fire and you'll get burned. Play with gay fire and you'll get gay burned. Number nine, steak whenever possible. Also, beef jerky. Number 10, this all must take place within the space of 30 days. This little idea had become a real experiment. I began referring to it as THE EXPERIMENT, capital letters on T and E, emphasizing its importance. Summer came, and it was time to get started. 
The experiment was only days away. My lefty wife had cheerfully told friends that if the experiment succeeded, she already had the divorce papers drawn up. It was her little joke, I hoped. Then there was the matter of my son. Just as I was preparing for a potential move to the right, my beautiful four-year-old boy, Charlie, was beginning his move from preschool apolitical bliss to the tree-hugging left. We had received a fundraising letter in the mail from the Sierra Club, and because it had animals on it and Charlie loves animals, he wanted to know what the letter was all about. Jill told him that President George W. Bush and his friends want to drill for oil in Alaska, and these people who sent us the letter want to stop them because they're afraid it will hurt the animals. So, Charlie asked, why did they send us a letter? Because they want us to give them money so they can use it to try to stop Bush from drilling up there, Jill explained. Charlie went right for his piggy bank, emptied out the $11 he had to his name, and said, Here, I want to send this to them. I want to save the animals. And with that solemn pledge, my son became a member of the Sierra Club. They sent him a tote bag and everything. So, as Charlie headed down the road of lefty activism, I was ready to join up with President George W. Bush, Jerry Falwell, and the Wall Street Journal editorial page. It was time to get dressed. Jill and I sat on a luxuriously padded bench in the posh men's suits department at the Nordstrom Department Store in downtown Seattle. Besides being my hometown, Seattle is the birthplace of Nordstrom, which existed originally to help outfit people who were heading off on great adventures to Alaska to search for gold. Today, it helps people dress for formal offices, formal events, and anywhere that calls for looking more important than people who shop at Target and Walmart. The men's suits department is the store at both its hoitiest and toitiest. I was completely out of my element. A handsome suit is not a requirement at the radio station where I work, though in recognition of my advancing age, I make an effort, and sadly it really does require effort, to at the very least avoid t-shirts with band names...